you have a Bible, would you please open it now to the book of 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3 in our reading today will be verses 1 through 5 with a particular emphasis on verse 5. Hear now the word of the living God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray that this word that goes forth from your mouth today would go forth in power and prosper where you send it and accomplish the purposes you have for it. And so, Lord, we ask for much of your spirit, both for the one who preaches and the one who hears. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Someone has rightly said the devil is an equal opportunity deceiver. He needs the Pharisaic yeast of moralism in the bread of every theological tradition. The very Protestantism that received the teaching of justification by faith alone, which was designed to release people from bondage to the law, produces its own version of Pharisaic moralism. The incessant drive to rely on our own goodness never leaves us this side of heaven. We forever want to think well of ourselves, and we want other people to think well of us. And that can be a dangerous door, which if we leave open, can bring, uh, can bring ravaging trouble to uh, a, a humble spiritual heart. Um, and so the gospel addresses the subject of moralism, and today we're going to talk about moralism. I was at dinner last night with two people who are not Christian, who don't go to church anywhere, and we had a lot of conversation about a lot of things. And at the end of the discussion, uh, the woman asked me, well, what are you speaking on tomorrow? Which I was, I nearly fell out of my chair. I, I nearly did. And I said, well, I'm speaking on moralism. And I could see that it registered with her, not at all. It's the blankest look I've ever seen. And this is very bright people, very sharp, very smart, very in tune people. And I could see that it didn't. So I tried to explain what it was like. And I talked a little bit about the church lady on Sa Saturday Night Live as sort of being a caricature of a moralistic person. And I said, I'm not preaching that this is what we want to be. I am preaching that this is what we do not want to be as believers in Christ. Jonathan Edwards identified two kinds of moral behavior. One was what he called common virtue, and the other was what he called true virtue. He says, the common virtue of honesty may be developed out of fear, either from society, if I lie, 
I'll be caught and exposed as a liar. Or religious, if you're not honest, God's going to punish you. It could also be cultivated by pride, which again can be just cultural. Don't be like those terrible, dishonest people or religious. Don't be like those sinners. Be a decent, godly person. Now, by no means does Edwards intend to be scornful of what he called common virtue. Indeed, he believes in the splendor of common morality as the main way God restrains evil in the world, the first use of the law. Nevertheless, there is a profound tension at the heart of common virtue because if fear and pride are what motivates a person to be honest, but fear and pride are also the root of lying and cheating, it's only a matter of time before such a thin moral foundation collapses. So Edwards goes on to say, thus common virtue has not done anything to root out the fundamental causes of evil. It has restrained the heart, but it hasn't changed the heart. And this jury-rigging of the heart creates quite a fragile condition. Indeed, through all the sermons and moral training you have received throughout your life, you are actually nurturing the roots of sin within your moral life. This is true whether you grew up with either a liberal or conservative values. The roots of evil were well protected beneath a veneer of moral progress. So what is the mark of honesty as a true virtue? It is the commitment to truth and honesty, not because it profits you or makes you feel better, but because you are smitten with the beauty of God, who is truth and sincerity and faithfulness. It's when you come to love the truth, not for your sake, but for God's sake and for its own sake. True honesty grows. When you see him dying for you, keeping a promise he made, despite the infinite suffering it brought him, that kind of virtue destroys both pride, Jesus had to die for me, and fear, Jesus values me infinitely, and nothing I can do will change his commitment to me. In this way, the heart is not just restrained, but rather its fundamental orientation is transformed. And so what I want to do today is sort of paint a picture for you of what moralism is. And there are several people in the New Testament who would be what I might call the poster children for moralism. One of them would be Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, a brilliant teacher who understood the law of God, came to Jesus at night, and Jesus sort of devastated him, not sort of, but did devastate him by saying, unless you are born again, you can't even see, perceive, understand, get the kingdom of God. Amen. And then you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what one thing can I do? He said, I've kept the law all of my life. I've been a moral person. He said, but what is the one thing I must do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Devastated the guy. He left in great sorrow. Um, the Pharisees, uh, writ large, are probably the biggest example in a nuanced way of what moralism is. And let me tell you this before I ever get into the sermon. I have done all this. This has all been a part of my life. I am repenting of this every day, but it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. So don't get your guard up too high. Remember, I'm speaking to you who is guilty of the very thing I'm trying to communicate to you. And so there are three 
uh, responses that we can give to the question of God's love. You ask somebody, do you know that God loves you? One person might say, I know God loves me. Why wouldn't he? Another person might say, I can't believe God loves me like that. Why would he? And the third response would be, I'm amazed and enthralled every day as I consider his love toward me. Now, I want to talk about these responses as illustrating um, how our hearts might respond to God's declaration of love for us and our resultant obedience. The first two responses, I know God loves me, why wouldn't he, would be those of what I call a happy moralist. Uh, The second one, I can't believe that God loves me like that, why would he, is the sad moralist. And they're typical of Christians who have let the gospel slip from the center of their faith and for whom the love of God is beginning to lose its transforming, melting power to change us. And so the happy moralist might react like this. He might say, well, I know that God loves me. Why wouldn't he? There have always been people who think that a kindly disposed, easily satisfied God is a given. These folks recognize a God who has, you know, rules of some sort, uh, but they assume they are doing a pretty good job of keeping whatever rules God may have And they know that they need a little bit of help from the man upstairs on occasion, from time to time. But aside from that, they figure God is pretty lucky to have them on the team. In recent times, this belief has grown exponentially, especially in Western evangelicalism. Assuming that God should love us because we are well as uh, uh, us will result in a bleak existence mired in happy moralism. Of course, the happy moralism or moralist will give a nod to the fact that God has made certain demands upon our life, but will reduce them down to two or three obligations and try to avoid flagrant, big, fat, juicy, technicolor sins that bad people commit. But when we don't see the depth of our own depravity, it's easy to look down on and judge other people who don't conform to our practices and to give ourselves a pretty much proverbial pat on the back. Jesus' harshest criticisms were aimed at the moralist. He relentlessly contrasted their outward show of religion with the weightier matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He wasn't terribly concerned about protecting their self-esteem. He called the Pharisees hypocrites, blind gods, and children of their father, the devil. Why would Jesus speak to them in such a way? For this one reason, he wanted to tear apart and devastate their self-reliance and self confidence and he understood that they would never embrace childlike humility that is essential for salvation as long as they trusted in their own goodness as Jonathan uh, John Gerstner often used to say it isn't so much our sins that keep us from God as it is our damnable good works and that's the happy moralist one night uh, happy moralist Nicodemus Uh, sought out Jesus, and the Lord annihilated him with, as I said earlier, five simple words. He did the same thing to the rich young ruler. Uh, He told both of them they had to do something beyond any ability 
uh, and he wanted them to recognize the full extent of how helpless they were. And that is the hardest thing to get people to see is how really helpless we are at being good. Paul, too, was constantly fighting against happy moralists. Those who wanted to add obedience to the law as a prerequisite to attaining righteousness before God. They had too much confidence in their abilities and too little confidence in God's goodness and generosity. And in their abilities, uh, they recognized Jesus as Messiah, but they balked at the idea that his law-keeping had to replace their own if they were ever to know God's favor. They mistakenly thought that if God loved obedience, then he would really approve of them if they were overly scrupulous, and so they added works of the law to their faith. As Paul said this morning, some 689 commandments. And so, and that's what people always do when, when they don't know the depth of their own depravity. Uh, they become more controlling and more restrictive. Um, just to uh, step away from the happy moralist for a moment, here are some of the ways, you know, the, what's that, goal, Jeff, whoever he was, Foxworthy, he used to say, uh, you might be a redneck. Here are some comments that might help you see if you are a moralist. First, a moralist always focuses on outward behavior, that which you see. They want to know how they look to other people. And they want to know if they look good. They're into impression management. Reputation means everything to them. And that's why the hypocrisy is so powerful, because they have to hide their sin and their shortcomings and their flaws and their failures and even their rebellion under a thin veneer of looking good. And so moralists always say, well, what would other people say if they saw you here or saw you do this? Or what if they had uh, the ability to hear what goes on between your ears? They also have a sense of moral superiority to, toward those who don't meet their standards and, and a very judgmental sort of smug self-righteousness, sort of a furrowed brow. We need to pray for them, you know. They... Uh, they uh, are horrible. They have sinned. Um, and they also are people who tend to take personal convictions and make them absolutes and judge other people who don't share their personal convictions. They have a corresponding agenda of moral reformation in the lives of society and individuals. They're always dissing the culture and cursing the darkness. They have a ministry of condemnation. It's very important for a moralist or a Pharisee to denounce sin. They have a separatist mentality. The world, as the moralist or the Pharisees see, is a source of corruption and defilement which they themselves must avoid. But who's going to get them away from their own filthy heart? Who's going to get them away from that? Somebody once asked me when I was at a general assembly for the PCA, and they came up and said, Oh, I see on your tag that you're in Las Vegas. Uh, why do we need a church there? That's what they asked me. And I said, Lord, give me strength. <laughs> give me strength not to come completely undone against this person. Why do we need a church there? And said, I couldn't live there, just the billboards and the things on the cabs. I couldn't raise my family there. I couldn't raise my children there. I said, well, I agree. I don't like that. But there ain't nothing on any billboard or taxi cab that ain't already in my heart. 
because I'm a sinner. But you don't hear moralists ever say that. They can't go there. They can't go there. And, and, and they're always looking at unbelievers and expecting them to act Christianly before they become Christians. And, and moralists don't really have any passion for evangelism because the gospel's certainly not working in their hearts. And so what we might call the happy moralist is a person who uh, superficially attempts to keep the law to avoid humiliation in their standing before God but um, and, and to have to stand before God as an unwashed Gentile and depend on sheer grace although it sounds nice it is actually an insult to honor God's son and strip the gospel of all of its powers and so Paul spoke some of the harshest words to those who were trying to ruin the Galatian simple faith. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's a pretty serious rebuke. Paul says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? But now that you have come to know God, or rather are known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly element? principles of the world whose slave you want to be once more look I Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you so if someone says of course God loves me why wouldn't he what's all the fussing about why would a perfectly holy God love me and if you answer because I'm not such a bad sort or because I tithe or because I try to serve him the best I can, you must see that those answers are totally wrong. You're missing the humiliation that comes with having to accept the truth about your own goodness. God's words, God's words says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. All things, does that strike you as unreasonably high as a standard for getting God's approval? Why not 70% or a passing grade or even 90%? Every command in Scripture uncovers what it means to love God supremely. And there are no innocent missteps. Every violation of God's law, large or small, reveals a heart that is prone to wander uh, from God himself and to flirt with other lovers. So... Also, any sin of thought, word, or deed reveals the infection of our hearts has not been utterly eradicated. A record of just merely above-average obedience in comparison to others falls short of the standard of thorough, total, and absolute purity inside and out that is required for, as a basis for God's holy declaration that anybody is righteous. Only Jesus met that standard and our only hope is that when we trust in him, his flawless record of infection, uh, free innocence is credited to us. What is it that makes us acceptable to him? Jesus makes us acceptable to him. And do you really believe that? Now, here are some of the ways that I've seen myself be a happy moralist. Do you find that other people irritate you? I always have to tell myself, yeah, you probably irritate somebody else just as bad. I always tell my wife when I go anywhere and I meet somebody, and she said, what do you think of this guy? And I said, well, you know, I couldn't stand him. And she said, really? Yeah, I said, I mean, honestly, you know, I love him in Jesus, but I can't stand him. 
And she says, what's the matter with you? I said, well, tell, tell me about him, she says. And so I start describing what this guy's like. She always just has this smirk. And when I finish, she looks at me and she says, he sounds a lot like you. <laughs> you met your twin. You were looking in the mirror. Huh. You know, you've been to the store before. I've been to the store before where you're standing in the 10 items or less line and somebody in front of you has 14 items. And what are you thinking? Do you fume at other drivers who don't signal before changing lanes or are texting at a red light? And it turns green and six cars have gone through and you're still sitting there behind the person texting. Do you find it easy to look down upon people who are unsaved or other Christians who are not as theologically sound as you are? Sometimes our Reformed communities can become very chauvinistic and very tribalistic. Why do we expect people? You know, if we really believe what we say, we believe we'd be the most gracious people on the planet. Do I find it difficult to receive criticism? Are you transparent and vulnerable before your friends? Are you defensive and self-protective? In your mind, do you rehearse your accomplishments and other people's faults when somebody tries to correct you? How dare you? Of all the gall for you to say that to me. Do you think that criticism is always a, a bad thing? Well, take a look at the cross. The cross is the most blatant statement of criticism ever displays. It says, you deserve to die. You deserve to be stripped naked and humiliated and then to receive the righteous wrath of a just God for all eternity. So our friends who are happy moralists are missing the gospel. And all of us have something more or less of the happy moralist inside our hearts. But Martin Luther said the following, you must get this through your head and never doubt that you are the one who is torturing Christ. Thus for your sins have you surely wrought this. Therefore when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain it is your work. And when you behold the crown of thorns, you may rest assured that these are your evil thoughts. Are we beginning to despair of being worthy of his love? Well, there's the second kind of moralist, not the happy one, but the sad moralist. And this may be some of you more so. The sad moralist really does see what the law says and says in response, I can't believe that God loves me like that. How could he? Why would he? He knows that God is transcendent, that you can't trifle with him. And so the sad moralist is a serious Christian. And when he reads a command in Matthew 23 uh, and following, he doesn't think for one moment he's fulfilled that command. He knows his sin. But just like the happy moralist, he has a pride problem. He believes that he ought to be able to do better, and so he's harsh with himself, and he thrashes himself with condemnation, hoping that by doing so, he will be able to obey and finally find the rest his heart so desires. He's trying to justify himself by penance and repentance. He is scrupulously religious and frequently outpaces other Christians around him, but sadly, it's never enough. It's never enough to calm his accusing conscience. He thinks that if he could just see his sin as it really is, he'd be sorry enough for it that God would finally be pleased with him. 
And when he reads about God's love for us in Christ, he isn't comforted. He isn't enthralled. He's terrified. He's condemned. He doesn't know the peace that Christ promises and the joy that should lift his heart. He, too, is trying to avoid the realities of the gospel, but from a different perspective. He's trying to prove that he's worthy, therefore removing the stumbling block of the cross. He's not alone. The following are two testimonies of godly men who were sad moralists before they really grasped the ramifications of grace. And one of them was George Whitfield, the famous evangelist. He said this, Our best duties are so many splendid sins. Before you can speak peace to your heart, you must not only be sick of your original and actual sin, but you must be made sick of your righteousness and of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of the heart. The pride of the heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And David Brainerd, who I read a biography of, I don't know, 30 years ago, who used to, who was a missionary to the Native Americans, and would, I read stories of him in the snow on his knees praying, throwing up blood. He was a sick man. But he said this, When I had been fasting and praying and obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory, to feel I was worthy. And as long as I was doing all of this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, everything for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I wasn't worshiping him, I was using him. Though I often confessed to God that I, of course, deserved nothing, yet I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. In other words, I tried to heal myself with my duties. I may, uh, you know, apart or aside from the insensitivity to the sweetness of God's love, the moralist, the sad one, is forced to rely on his own righteousness because he's aware of the requirements of the law and he knows he'll never make the grade. In his desire to prove his love for God, he will be tempted to resent God for being so demanding. When he's overwhelmed and exhausted from the wrestlings of the soul, he gives up in apathy and gives in to self-indulgence. Then, of course, the whole cycle begins again, renewed efforts at self-reformation. Following are some questions you should ask yourself if you suspect you're a sad moralist. Why would a perfect, holy God love me? And if you answer, I suppose he might love me because he promises to, but then these promises are for people who love him with all their hearts and prove their love by their actions. So I guess I don't know why he would love me, or actually, even if he does, can you see how hoping to earn his love by being worthy of his love thereby negates the grace which is the essence of the gospel what makes me uh, acceptable to him well i suppose that jesus's righteousness does make me acceptable to him but i just can't help but think i must be a big disappointment to him do you picture god as a forbearing parent who puts up with defective delinquent children disowning not disowning you but not wanting you to be very near can you see how the gospel is good news only because it isn't about your record at all? You've been com uh, completely justified by believing. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished, yes indeed, finished every jot. 
Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? James Proctor, who is the author of that hymn, prefaced it with these three lines, or these lines. Since I first discovered Jesus to be the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes, I have more than once met with a poor sinner seeking peace at the foot of Sinai, that is the law, instead of Calvary, and I've heard him again and again in bitter disappointment and fear groaning out, what must I do? And I've said to him, do, do, what can you do? Cast your deadly doing down. If you think similarly, to this sad moralist, have you forgotten your union with Christ? You are in union with him. Is the father disappointed in his son? Of course not. Then he cannot be disappointed with you. Am I critical of others who seem to be enjoying God's blessings, especially when I know they don't work nearly as hard as I do to be holy? Are you censorious or envious or hateful of Christians who have weak theology or are overly emotional? If so, you're missing the gospel. You're like the elder brother in the parable of the welcoming father and you're trying to earn a reward or you imagine that you've already earned it and resent the fact that it hasn't yet been paid. And it might seem counterintuitive. You don't need to be assured you have a better record. You need to embrace your utter helplessness. Then as you begin to believe the only way you can be justified is through Christ's righteousness, you will be able to be welcoming and gracious toward other Christians, even with those with whom you do not agree. Because they are, only by his, uh, they are his only by grace as well. Remembering that we're all saved by grace alone makes us love others and makes us more patient. The sad moralist, is so self-critical, criticism from others can feel devastating. But criticism has the power to devastate only because the sad moralist is hanging on to shards of self-respect. He's still hoping to be good. Embrace your helplessness. It is the only qualification that enables you to be saved. Now, in contrast to the happy moralist who thinks he's making it and the sad moralist who knows he's not, there is the gospel centered Christian and this person is amazed and enthralled as they hear about God's counter-conditional love for us and so one of the things that I find most helpful and I'm, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly is first a gospel-centered Christian has what I call a healthy relationship with the law of God to begin with a gospel-centered Christian has a proper relationship with the law. Many Christians are confused about the place of God's law in their life, so they ignore it entirely. And they think that Christianity is something akin to a spiritual social event. Some vaguely know that the law has been abrogated in some way, and they know they didn't get saved by obeying it and believe that the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament are probably fine for their time, but passe now. Both of these approaches militate against the law and may indicate a belief seeking to live an obedient life is legalism. Of course, there are Christians who are over-attentive to the law. These would be serious Christians who believe that their justification is only by grace, but forget that sanctification, our slow change into Christ-likeness, is a work of free grace, even as justification is a legal act of free grace. But they're both of free grace. 
For the gospel-centered Christian, the function of the law is to drive us to Christ. The function of the law is to expose us, to mirror back to us, to reveal to us. There are two ways of preaching that I hear in culture. One way is preaching like this. It's going to a text and it says, what does the text say? Well, the text gives me some principle, some moral principle that I need to keep. Well, let me understand what the moral principle is and then ask God for help in keeping the moral principle. There's a second way of hearing uh, the Bible preached. And the second way is this way. What does the text say? What is the law or moral principle or example or whatever it's laying out for me to do? But here's the third one. Here's why I will never be able to do it. <laughs> I will never be able to do it. Therefore, when I see the passage that Christ has done it for me, I believe that and then I'm motivated in my heart to go out and live that principle. And by seeing that Christ has done it for me and by trusting in him, I am enabled by God's spirit to live in accordance with that principle. And so one of those is moralistic preaching. And the world is full of moralistic preaching. It's in the church everywhere. People don't preach Jesus they preach what you ought to do. And people want sermons. They always come to me and say, Pastor Tim, why don't you tell me, give me steps. Reminds me of an old Leonard Skinner song, Give Me Three Steps. Give me steps. Mister, please give me steps. Tell me what to do. Lay out a plan for me. Give me a Christian Talmud. You know, tell me what to do. Tell me how to find God's will. You know, all these things. And I understand that. I get that. But I keep sending you back to Jesus because that's what the Bible is about. It's not about anything other than him that will help you. And once you see him and see him clearly, then you're motivated to obey God with a full, clean heart. The, uh, our response to the love of God for in, us in Christ will in part be determined by whether we understand the role of God's law in our lives. Since we want to rejoice in God's love and respond in grateful obedience, here's a simple way to think about the law of God. Paul writes, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But it is an instrument of condemnation to us all because we're not able to obey it perfectly. For the gospel-centered Christian, the function of the law is to drive us to Christ and make us continually more and more thankful for his perfect keeping of it in our place. It makes us more and more dependent upon his righteousness, not our own. And when we do so every day, then we respond to the Lord in the light of our failures in humble uh, contrition. We are, number one, confess our sins to God openly and freely while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit to strive against them. We're to thank God for our ongoing struggle with sin because when rightly viewed, it makes us love and appreciate Jesus more. Strive to put off our sin and obey all the moral law in the light of God's ongoing forgiveness, love, and grace. And that is the dance we do if we're gospel Christians. Most Christians practice point one and point three, but they miss the truth that God is sovereign even over our sin. And even though he hates sin, he uses it to bring praise to his one and only son. 
At any point that it pleased him, he could put an end to sin, but he doesn't. So we must assume that he uses it some way for his glory. We are not saying, and I am not saying, that sin ever pleases God in itself. God is not tempted, nor does he tempt us to sin. God is sovereign even over, over sin. He uses it for his glory. But we need to know this. We pray, Father, let your will be done for me, knowing that his revealed will, and we obey the instructions in his scripture. And then at night we look back on our day and we see ways in which we have failed to obey. We humble ourselves before his secret and will say, Father, please forgive my sin and cause me to walk in holiness. Thank you that my sin reminds me of how desperately I need the cross and how thankful I am for your grace. Thank you for your love for me despite my sin today and that you will use even this for your glory. Lord Jesus, thank you that you bore those sins in your body on the tree. Thank you for your love. Grant me the grace to obey because of it. And that is the right way to see your sin. And that is what a gospel-centered person is. We don't hide it. We don't cover it. We don't call it by another name. We don't blame it on everybody else. We own it. We take it to the Lord. And in your confession of sin, please remember to be grateful for Christ receiving the punishment for it. John Stott, who wrote a book called Confess Your Sin, and he, th he was dealing with people who said, Nah, you don't need to do that. You're already forgiven. No point in doing that. Who wants to go and dwell there? You know, that's just, uh, um, you know, being obsessed with your wickedness and your depravity, and you'll end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and Stott says, you need to name your sin because you need to look at it. You need to see it. And you need to see it in the light of what it did to your Savior upon the cross. And you need to see it as something that will drive you to greater dependence upon grace and the righteousness Jesus has provided for you. And so that's sort of the kernel of real Christianity in the midst of happy and sad marvelous. Now let me tell you something that's not going to be very encouraging to you. I can be a happy and sad moralist within two minutes of each other. I can't. And my heart's desire is to certainly be a gospel-centered Christian. We don't need moralism in the church. We need gospelism. We need to be gospelized. And so that's why we place such an emphasis upon that for transformation. Because being a happy or sad moralist is never going to change. But believing in the power of the gospel, understanding the power that's in it, and the transformation that it brings causes us to look at life so differently and so one of the hardest things I have to do as a pastor is um, stay on my knees before Jesus bringing to myself the reality as I said that I can be one or the other within two minutes of each other and to learn you know if God had wanted to deliver me from sin totally he could speak it, and it's done, and he will one day. But now I struggle with it. But it makes me love my Jesus more than anything else, seeing what he was willing to do for me and how his love expresses itself toward me. So that's what it means to not be a moralist 
and to be a gospelist. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. It is powerful. It is sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you for the truth that we've heard today. And we also acknowledge that we can become arrogant and self-righteous about being gospel people. And we can think we're better than other people because we understand the gospel. It's a never-ending thing with us. But we pray that you would use your perfect, royal, beautiful, truthful law and bring us to our knees and bring us and drive us to Jesus. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give us people who understand your great love. Thank you for your unspeakable gift. In Jesus' name, amen.